welcome to season two of The Unforgiving 60 with your hosts, Ben Pronk and Tim Curtis. Two ex-SAS guys armed with MBAs. In this show, Ben and Tim seek out people leading lives less ordinary and talk with them about how they fill their unforgiving minutes and what helps them go always a little further. And welcome back to the Unforgiving 60 podcast. I'm Tim Curtis. In this special double episode, Simon Hawken from the HR with Hawks podcast will interview Ben and myself in somewhat of a role reversal. We're going to talk about our upbringings, parents, specifically our fathers, and our life through the military and beyond. What Simon contrasts as parallel paths. We hope you enjoy part A of this two-part series with Simon Hawken from the HR with Hawks podcast. Let's get on with the show. Thanks for coming along, Tim and Ben, and having a chat today. I appreciate it. Yeah, pleasure. Um, how's everything going over there in WA? Treating you well? Yeah, pretty good. Um, we've just moved into a new office, which I managed to evacuate the whole building today by operating a belt sander on a on a wall so um note to self good way to meet the uh, the new neighbors meet the neighbors well, there, yeah. the, there was no parental supervision hawks oh, so i was detective. out of the office and someone decided he'd grab the sander and yeah sand it's, a wall. it's no coincidence that tim was out of the office when there was heavy lifting to do <laughs> well speaking of wa fortress wa i was saying to a client today gee if you could pick the location that you wanted to be in the world in the year 2020 it would nearly be here in sunny perth we've been very fortunate yeah you um luckily with the distance for COVID, i think it was a long way to move is that the 1.5 meter distance or <laughs> i don't know the distance to get there is, um, killer you couldn't even run across the border so childhood, you're both army brats. Both your fathers were soldiers hmm. or officers. Yeah, they were officers. They weren't soldiers. They were officers in the army. Mm-hmm. Uh, I know a fair bit about Tim's dad because he was a bit of a legend hmm. and obviously still is. But um, what about yourself, Ben? So my old man was a pilot and had this sort of interesting career during the Great Peace. So he went to through Portsea um, relatively late. He'd done a number of sort of a bit of travel, a few labouring sort of jobs, um, and went to Portsea as about a 24-year-old. Um, and this was in, uh, I want to say, the late 60s, early 70s, I think. Then just say it. I'll say it. And so a lot of his classmates were Vietnam veterans, so a lot of ex-servies that had gone up. And, in fact, he tells a funny story about one of his um, people in his platoon at Portsea, uh, who had been the forward scout um, in a, a platoon in Vietnam and, and I think was mentioned in dispatches or, or, or got a medal. But his old platoon sergeant from that platoon in Vietnam was the RSM at Portsea. So this guy could get away with murder. And I mean, looking back, Dad reckons he was pretty much a functioning alcoholic. You know, there's, I guess, nothing funny about it. He, he probably had a few demons. But um, you know, while the rest of them were getting beat, beasted and, and, you know, this is old school drill sergeant sort of stuff, you know, 
parade ground at, at two in the morning in the rain. Uh, old mate was cactus, sort of drunk in the lines, and and everyone just let it slide. But um, you know, he obviously had the runs on the board. So yeah, Dad graduated, um, did a year in cavalry. Um, back in the day, as a pilot, you had to do a regimental posting. So he drove around APCs and. It's Bloody good to see that we still have, have them. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Um, no longer they have extended. Yeah, yeah. Apparently they're they're a bit shinier now. But um, yeah, did that for a year. Got to pilot's course. Got qualled. Got converted onto Kiowas. Ready to go. And then the war ended and didn't start again for another thirty years. So um, he flew uh, Kiowas. In fact, no, it was Sue's. Remember the old Mash, the bubble mm. Sue helicopters? Um, that was his first type. Uh, they then converted to Kiowa. So he flew recce uh, for his whole career and had some wonderful stories about uh, doing survey sort of activities up in Papua New Guinea mm. and kind of alone and unafraid, well, not alone, him and a, a surveyor, a, a digger, and they'd, they'd sort of fly to the top of mountains and do whatever cartographers or surveyors do and, and real just amazing adventure stuff, including once where he reckons he he landed, the, the surveyor jumped off and ran off to survey <laughs> and he's showing your deep technical understanding yeah. of the trade craft <laughs> exactly um surveying locals yeah yeah he, he was doing some surveying and um dad in the sioux which had a skid it was skid helicopters um apparently had had sort of jockeyed around a bit it was an unstable landing zone and managed to catch a vine over the skid on the Sioux and as he powered up to take off it sort of caught and he thought nothing a bit of horsepower can't fix mm. turns out it was something that horsepower couldn't <laughs> yeah. fix and he he flipped this bloody Sioux in the middle of the jungle and um I think wrote it off certainly smashed it up there's some mm. cool old black and white photos of of this bubble helicopter that's torn itself to shreds by inverting member to pay Ah, uh, I think he said, you know, a thorough search was conducted. <laughs> yeah, <that's laughs> it could not be located and, and service expense. So for the loss and damage report, for those listeners that don't understand the army system, you lose or break anything, you have to fill out a loss and damage report. And on L&D. when the investigating officer reviews it and considers all evidence, they decide whether it's member to pay <laughs> or not. No, I don't think he had to buy, buy the army a helicopter. But look, so we, we grew up, my brother and I grew up with um, uh, moving around a bit, as you do, sort of southeast Queensland. Oakey was kind of home base, but we'd bounce around between that. But just Dad loved his career. He loved flying. He loved the army. He particularly loved and always felt really privileged to... It was almost like he couldn't believe that he was able to be in charge of soldiers and, and you know, he could do things to make life better for them. Um, I, I'm clearly looking back with rose-coloured glasses, but um, that was my sort of memory of, of his view on being an officer and, and he ended up as a commanding officer. Um, the real sort of privilege of it and the ability to, to help people... Um, and look, I'm I'm sure he was a prick at times as well, but it's it's been wonderful through both my brother and my career that when we come across people uh, who have served with him, they go out of their way to say, you know, it was a real pleasure to serve with your dad and, and that sort of stuff. I guess you probably wouldn't say your dad was a prick. <laughs> You'd just keep quiet, oh, yeah. but but um, no, but it, it, it's been good. We're, we're very proud of his service and, and his legacy, I suppose. He passed a couple of years ago and, um, and in fact, it, it was a beautiful it's funny to use that word when your dad dies but a a beautiful period um 
and the the funeral in particular like a lot of people came it was at relatively short notice um he battled cancer for a while but the end game was really quick and sort of i think it was about three days after he passed that we had the funeral but people came from everywhere which was awesome and in fact the the school up at oki put on a, a fly past again at very short notice and um i'm eternally indebted to them the guys wouldn't have known him you know young pilots that have taken time out of their obviously busy schedule to to jack this up and you know that missing man formation bloody hell I'm, I'm tearing up just thinking about it we saw a few in Afghanistan as well but you know when that that aircraft peels off to to represent the 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 fallen Jesus not a dry eye in the house mm. they do it every year up here for the black hole ah yeah yeah, yeah. Yeah, fly over Townsville and have the one fade away. Yeah, coming from it's um, it's good. Yeah, it is. It, it, it really good is. Good for a bad thing. It remembers a bad thing, but it's good. And and I love that the symbology that you know one one's faded away, but the the rest of the crew are still on mission. You know, mm. the the rest of the formation is still keeping up, keeping going, which I think is. I mean, that's to me, that's what the the military is about, and. Certainly the Blackhawks are a great example of the stirring stories that you hear. And I think Tim's got more first-hand experience of, you know, as the funerals are going on, people are, are rebuilding the CT capability. And even just recently, I mean, clearly there's been a lot of uh, press about the SAS recently and some really tough times that the unit is facing. Um, but last Friday, the day after that uh, IGADF report was released, um, you know, the collective regimental family was was pretty down um and i remember waking up in the morning feeling you know pretty sort of uh i guess moved by the the whole sequence of events and then just hearing rotors in the distance and i walked out the front of my place and i looked up two black hawks flying across full of operators you know legs out the side they're they're doing um training back onto swanbourne and and it just uh filled me with such reassurance that even amongst all this you know the unit's got some stuff to sort out and and different things are, are in progress but the capability rolls on the the boys in those helicopters are, are still bringing it to to um to each day which is i, I find really reassuring hmm. i had a beret ceremony a couple of days after the um the very day after yeah yeah which um and again you know i was fortunate enough to to be invited to that um so the uh, I was the selection course of or the the Rio cycle of two thousand and twenty years on, which makes me feel very old and and busted. But seeing the the caliber and just the consistency of excellence of the the new folk um, that were, were getting their hats and and joining the regiment, another extremely reassuring thing. And and I've got no doubt the capability will continue to progress and all the excellence that was always there and even through all of this, I mean, there's a narrative of, of a toxic culture and that sort of stuff and there are certainly elements which uh, allegedly and apparently have, have manifested that way but the the overriding culture of that place I think is one of excellence and um, I was really, I keep using that word reassured but it, it was very pleasing to see that that's still the case. And humility, I'll probably add that word in there, I think. No oh, I agree 100%. No I think one. that unit... Um, still exudes professionalism and even this little chink will just bounce off the arm and they'll keep going well there's a determination to get it right and i think you know yeah. where that determination exists and you superimpose humility and excellence they will get a good result 
no one's standing behind the poor behaviours of the minority, but in, in the majority that's a capability that is world class, that the Australian public can be proud of and that government will continue to rely on. Mm. So does that answer your question on, on <laughs> your, a little bit about your upbringing? <laughs> no, I wanted to come back a little bit because, um, you know, the one thing your dad, Hank, did was he raised two beautiful boys with some fantastic philosophies. And beautiful. some of his philosophies continue on, Ben. And, and one that, you know, you've raised a few times is um, your dad saying if, I'm going to paraphrase, correct me, um, if anyone can do something, then you can do it. Yeah. Which resulted in a lot of botched home repairs. <laughs> <laughs> no, he that it, it's it, that was probably the single greatest gift. And you know, if you think about his legacy, that he instilled in both Dan and I this idea that people do stuff, and if people can do it, then you can do it. Um, which has carried. I mean, Dan probably more than I. Um, he he wrote a book about it, the average seventy kilo dickhead. I mean, we we were both just average sort of dickheads, and um, but you know that that uh, attitude, that mentality that that he instilled in us that things are figure outable, and he would he would very much manifest that in in terms of um, like you know stuff around the house or fixing cars or the washing machine broke. I mean, you know, nothing was a black art to him. Um, he he sort of yeah sort of learn how to do it and and work it out which uh empowered us it was great and thing two also i guess drove your interest in poetry and prose yeah he he was very much uh i mean we obviously named our podcast after a a piece of poetry that tim and i both love but um that was constant throughout our childhood dad had have these and, and look, some of them, he also liked, you know, in amongst the, the Rudyard Kiplings and the, the, the various sort of iconic um, pieces of poetry and prose, um, he also really liked dirty limericks for some reason. <laughs> there was an old man from Cork. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, um, yeah, look, it wasn't all, you know, don't, don't get this impression that there was this sort of deep wise philosopher. There was, there was a bit of um, barroom banter as well. But, yeah, it, it was a, um, I think we were very privileged um, in a whole bunch of reasons. It sounds like he was a very well-educated man, very smart. Yeah, but yeah. I'm no. a joke. No, he was a good dude. Yeah. It's good. What about you, Tim? What about your old fella? Yeah, just catching up a little bit with Ben. Yeah, so my, my father, less academically inclined, he finished school being a Perth boy and went to university, did his first year of architecture pretty much from Cottesloe Beach <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, you know, summarily failed and joined the army so he was a little older than the rest of his army classmates he was accepted into the royal military college duntroon in 1959 uh, in the days where it was a four-year program and he graduated at the dizzying heights of a corporal at rmc which is pretty much the lowest rank you can you can be as a member of the graduating oh, class no, that's untrue i was a lance corporal when i graduated <laughs> <laughs> perhaps more on that later <laughs> Um, and Dad, uh, Dad graduated to the 4th Battalion of the Royal Australian Regiment and uh, pretty much immediately re- uh, the battalion ramped up to go to Borneo to fight in Confrontasi, uh, the confrontation with the Indonesians. Um, he was a young platoon commander. 
And during that operation, he was awarded a military cross for an ambush that he led on a ridgeline called the Gunong Raya, which actually I visited uh, him uh, with him, uh, the Gunong Raya, a few years ago. Um, and uh, he sadly lost a soldier in that same contact. Uh, these are the days when I think it was... West winds were they over the helicopters? Yeah, those weird two-story looking things. Yeah, 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 yeah. And and those things were not particularly nimble to get into a jungle canopy <laughs> or on a, on a you know knife edge ridge line. Well, you, clearly you wouldn't have wanted my old man. Flying. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good, very good point. Right. A very good point. In fact, uh, I still joke with my father. He he talks about how um, some of the ammunition and explosives and grenades that they were carrying at the time were often faulty. Uh, and that he threw a grenade and it failed to detonate in the middle of the contact. And so our running joke is, well, it didn't detonate because you never pulled a pin. And <laughs> I've been threatening for some years now to walk back and find that grenade and and, uh, and verify it. But actually, funnily enough, uh, a beautiful friend of my dad's called Brian Avery, who was an intelligence corps guy, did go back through the archives and discovered that someone did find the grenade that dad threw and sure enough the pin was pulled from it but yeah sadly he uh, he had two guys shot um in that in that particular contact they had to evacuate both off the gunong raya um which when you're looking at a topographical map doesn't look that imposing <laughs> the maps are nice and flat aren't yeah, they very flat um and uh, the contact finished just on dusk. They had to evacuate them down this very steep and muddy ridgeline onto um, hastily prepared stretches. Uh, one guy was very silent and the other was, uh, interestingly, singing Irish drinking songs, as I understand, as the morphine kicked in. And they thought, oh, he's going to be in great shape. Um, as it transpired, um, they lit a landing point for the helicopter to come in with hexamine tablets, I think, Hawks. And yep. uh, in came the helicopter and evacuated them both. And the guy who was uh, singing the Irish drinking songs actually passed away and the other guy lived. And that profoundly affected my father. And it's it's interesting, I guess, watching you know things through the prism of leadership. Um, he was a young soldier. He was not married. But Dad stayed in touch with his parents until... The year they died, every single year he was in touch with with the family. Um, And the other thing that's interesting is my father has never told me the story of that contact on the Gunong Rai that he was awarded his military crossing. I actually found out about it because there was an old cassette tape next to all of these records amongst his collection and it had a dress by Brigadier R.G. Curtis, AMMC, to some wives group and I thought, oh, this is kind of interesting. And I plugged it in and, you know, fast forward and he's talking about leadership and fast forward, he's talking about something else. And then um, there was questions and um, one of the questions was, you know, Brigadier, could you tell us how you won your MC? And he told the story that I'd never heard. And that was about the first time that I, um, yeah, that I heard the story. And it's a, it, I, I do find it funny when you, you read, I mean, that it, the citation for your dad's MC is amazing but there's still it's the old red gum thing you know the anzac legends never mention the mud the blood the tears you know it describes a really tough position but but that visceral sort of stuff imagine carrying that guy out or two guys that you don't know if they're going to make it they're doing weird stuff 
you know, because of the morphine. Like, it's just such an extraordinary situation and so impactful, um, not just in the moment, but, you know, throughout life. It, I think that sort of stuff gets lost. And I guess to our earlier conversation on the, the current situation with the SAS, I mean, there's a lot of context and there is a lot of impact that these sort of situations have on people that it's almost impossible to convey to, to people who, who haven't sort of been there or been involved. It's very emotional and very, um, uh, I use that word, extraordinary. You know, it is, it is so different to, to what most of us experience in our day-to-day life. Mm. I think yeah. too, in the past, um, whereas now um, someone gets injured or killed, whatever it may be, whilst it's still, um, still terrible, I think in the past with your dad, Tim, it was more of um, it had happened and then you continued on and you had to get that person out. Whereas nowadays it's the focus is on getting that person out as quick as possible mm. and using whatever resources and assets you can get. But back in those days, because I've heard a lot of stories like that where they had to carry you know, their casualties out for long periods of time and they lost people on the way. And if they had the know-how and the equipment that uh, and resources that we could apply now, um, it's probably one of the reasons why it does impact those guys. Hmm. He was in, in, you know, he's in command of that platoon or whatever it was. But you know, when it came down to that crunch, he wasn't really in command yeah. of the bigger picture. He couldn't influence getting those people out. So I understand that that hmm. he could um, struggle with that. Yeah, yeah, and but you know, it's if- it's it's funny, you know, to to Ben's point on on the context. He did a full appreciation when he set that ambush. He was sure that that the enemy, as they're termed in the contact report, would come along this particular route, and sure enough, they did not. They came from exactly the location that he thought was least likely, which meant that he had to silently turn the whole ambush around, and I think he initiated contact at nine metres. I mean, you know, you think about that in terms of density of jungle to turn your platoon or half platoon ambush it was around you know 180 degrees and then remain undiscovered until you initiate contact at nine meters i mean that hopefully brings a little bit of color into the challenges that, that you know they experienced and um change yeah, spot. change environment it was a very tough spot yeah um for people i spoke to brigadier mansford the other week he spoke about that and um mm. yeah he remembers it, as, it was just a tough slog through Malaya, but um, very interesting. He threw a grenade too that didn't go off. Maybe he should have a chat to you. <laughs> <laughs> Was it the same one? <laughs> same batch. So Dad, Dad came back and continued to, to serve on. He served also in Vietnam as a company 2IC and also as the intelligence officer. Um, in fact, in many ways, I think that impacted him as much as Borneo um, he'd only told me this story a couple of weeks ago. They were doing their relief in place, and uh, during the middle of this relief in place, they got mortared by the Viet Cong, um, and uh, he, he just saw these le- these levels of paralysis. I won't go into too much detail, but that really quite affected him, the decision-making, particularly amongst some of his peers in the officer corps. Um, and I think that his, his big problem, Hawks, was that whilst he was the intelligence officer, he was on 
um, one of those antiquated radios. God knows what they were, an F1 or a 77 PRC set. PRC 77 set. During a lightning storm, and uh, he got struck by lightning down the handset. <laughs> got, got blown out of the CP. I don't think he's ever been the same. <laughs> I never knew that story. Yeah. Um, old, old lightning rod Curtis. Old lightning rod, yeah. Um, so he continued to serve, I think, in total about 35 years. He ultimately did serve also in, in the SAS regiment off the back of Vietnam, and he never did a selection course. He was asked to go and join the unit as part of cultural change um, that that was, was felt was necessary um, after the SAS regiment's time in Vietnam. Um, and Dad then took a range of different jobs, including being the chief instructor at RMC before returning back to the SAS as the commanding Hang on, officer. Don't gloss over that. Would, wasn't one of his important roles as chief instructor of RMC to issue you a censure or something? No, that was his commandant. We'll come to that. We'll come to that in a second. Oh, I'm sorry. I was I'm trying, trying to warn. Not onto me yet. <laughs> um, RMC yeah. was still good then. Oh, that was you know, the last of the hard courses back there. But he, yeah, he was he was the commanding officer of the SAS regiment in its formative counter-terrorist years, so uh, 70, uh, 80, 81, 82, around about that era, yep. um, when the unit was building the CT capability and doing everything they could to find out what is the definition of counterterrorism? <laughs> what what people CT do we need? What equipment yep. do we need? What skills do we need? How do we put it all together in order to combat these hostage siege incidents that would started to see trend where, up globally? Where were they going for that? Was it mainly to UK? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, and Princess Gate was seventy nine. That's right. Was yeah, that right? yeah, the yeah. Embassy siege. Exactly. Um, and there were some other things that were permeating around globally that. That well, really lots of aircraft stuff, wasn't it? PLO exactly. and yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. So uh, he finished up his time in uh, in Brisbane as a one star, as a brigadier, and proceeded into semi-retirement. That wasn't so semi. He bought an avocado farm and then bought into a real estate agency, and that got so busy that mum was running the avocado farm and dad was pretty much full-time in the real estate, and then they drew down on both of those things, and yeah, we're kind of delighted that out of the blue they rang and said, we want to move from southeast Queensland and come back to Perth. Do you have any objections? Which was kind of wonderful. They asked the question, and of course we didn't, and they're about 20 minutes away from us now, which is awesome to have them so close. And an interesting little postscript, um, Rod ended up as the Colonel Commandant of the SAS Regiment during the period I was mm. the commanding officer. And so it it was a wonderful, I mean, looking back, a, a nice little sort of bookend and that, that sort of intertwining of, of, I guess, both our families, Tim and my families, um, but also an amazing um, touchstone and reference point for me at that time we were just coming out of Vietnam Tim mentioned you know Rod had been commanding officer uh, sorry we were coming out of Afghanistan Tim mentioned Rod had been commanding officer out of Vietnam and just those shifts in terms of unit focus and sort of organizational pressure and all this sort of stuff and remember we'd had um you know, this was the start of the IGADF period, so there was a lot of interest in the unit. Um, there were some governance things that, that were being addressed. And so we were, we were kind of under the microscope. There was a lot of attention from Canberra. 
and I remember reflecting on that with Rod, and he said, um, yeah, no, I, I remember similar sort of things. At, at one point, we shot a greenskeeper in the goal golf course that's right in the in the ass in the ass and um and i did this double take i'm thinking what you know like we we sort of you know had all this this sort of camera scrutiny i said what you shot a civvy next door he said yeah yeah one of the rangers you know was kind of sighted incorrectly and a ricochet got this guy in the ass and apparently it was on the front page of the west this bloke and he showed me the photo it's this this very dour looking greenskeeper sort of half pulling down his pants to show his bullet hole in his ass from a, a nine mil round from across the road at Swanbourne and and I was at that stage fully under the pump every sort of one star in in Canberra seemed to be taking a swipe at me and I said Jesus how did you know what happened did did the world descend on you and he said uh, no, I don't think we ever told Cam. <laughs> and of course, back in the day, no one read the West. Yeah, that's right. Uh, yeah, you'd, you'd, have to, you'd have to have it delivered to Russell Office's camera, <laughs> which would probably would arrive three weeks late. It was a funny little before and after story. Um, but yeah, things have changed. And probably for the better. You shouldn't go shooting greenskeepers if you can avoid it. No, I mean, the greenskeeper was in the wrong spot. He should have been... He should have been taking yeah, cover. He, he should have been on the, the seventh than, hole, not the, the eighth. Yeah. He was embracing concealment, not cover hawks. He should have been... But he never you, did it again. <laughs> yeah. Mm. yeah. All right, so both your fathers were um, officers in defence, which sounds as though pretty stellar careers. Um, and you two guys were growing up, obviously, with these gentlemen. Do you think they had an influence on <laughs> you, deciding to in defence as a officer in particular? For for me, 100%. Um, we'd grown up, and, and I guess it was the good old days. I assume units still have open days, but I remember every year you'd, you'd go into a brigade open day and you'd get cammed up. You know, soldiers would put you in the back of an APC and you'd do a blank fire contact or you'd go on a helicopter. It was amazing. And so I was hooked. I was the kid, you know, in primary school, buddy running around with toy guns and that sort of stuff I was always going to join um, my brother was quite the opposite he came quite a circuitous route into the the military but yeah no I, I think I was gone from from day dot mm. yeah nearly impossible to say no for me I mean my uh, year four five and six so what's that nine ten and eleven years of age in the you know, living inside the SAS regiment when that was a thing um, running around barefoot with the other kids and you know you'd be comfortably sitting at home and all of a sudden a ct assault would happen out the at the front, your front door and you know dad's volunteered his house to be a stronghold and <laughs> people running around and oh it was just it was a wonderful upbringing um and yeah so it did have an influence on you guys do you think yeah for sure mm. for sure although it, it is funny i i um i think after i joined so i, I must have been at adfa but uh, telling Dad that, you know, what's this SAS stuff? And I'm, I think I'm pretty interested. It sounds great. And I remember, like I said before, he was in, uh, incredibly enabling and supportive. But um, he just laughed at me when I said, I'm, I'm interested in the SAS. He said, nah, mate, you've, you've got rocks in your head. You, you, What you want to do, you don't want to walk around the, the bush with your, your house on your back. You want to fly around and, and go back to a comfy bed each night. And he sort of laughed at me for that aspiration. Well, he's not wrong, is he? <laughs> no. <laughs> no. Yeah, no, he's, he, he had a very good point. It's like that guy you guys spoke to on your podcast that 
left the RAF as a fighter pilot and went to the regiment. Yeah, Robo. I listened to that. It was very interesting, but I thought, shit, fucking dumb mistake. <laughs> enjoyed yeah, we, we've always, in fact, I still am baffled why you'd, you'd leave that, that Top Gun sort of job and, and go and crawl in the mud, but he's a pretty amazing guy, Tim. I can understand it because it's a very, um, it'd be a very lonely job as a fighter pilot. You know, just on your own and the decisions are, they're not really impacting directly onto people except the enemy, obviously. But he, as a commander, he wasn't really influencing people so much. Whereas when you listen to his, on the podcast, when he went to the regiment, he struggled a little bit with um, his skills, which he said in leadership, it obviously did a lot for him because you see what he's done now. Mm. He's just developed into this machine that just achieves. <laughs> mm. It's amazing. It's very interesting. Yeah. I enjoyed that. I actually heard about that years ago that I went and did that and I thought, shit, crazy. Well, over the, the time, there's been a number, I think, yeah, of um, fighter pilots who have, who have come into the unit. There's obviously something about that kind of you know, sickenly high-performing sort of all-rounder. But um, they've each of them that I've known have bought a lot. It's a, a great different perspective. And, in fact, we've had um, submariners as well who do the same. You know, mm. that different kind of uh, sort of high-performing or elite, if you like, field, um, they bring a slightly different perspective. And, it, it, I mean, it in all of those cases, just staggering how rapidly they assimilate stuff that we've done our whole career you know as infantrymen um it it does go to show you can teach the skills but that kind of attitude and the the sort of trust and and the uh i guess performance mindset that yeah people who've got that can often turn their their skills to everything i think you're right a fighter pilot's got to manage a lot of information very quickly and um make decisions based on that whereas you know getting on the ground's a bit slower but high speed up there dealing with all that flow of information would be difficult it it was funny for me i I think tim was just going to say that he was inspired by top gun i think every every gentleman of a certain age about our our era were and all the the people who had streamed pilot from our ad for class you know they're all the sort of top gun wannabes and then they're the the quiet sort of diligent achievers and you know the ones who ended up in fast jets were not the the people with the tom cruise motorbike and the leather jacket they were the the mm. you know quite sharp humble you know thinking achievers mm. not exclusively yeah. but <laughs> well you said they were lonely well, what, what happened to you two what did all, you two go to fox school you said those fighter pilots were lonely hawks i, I beg to differ <laughs> they're up there with their favorite person <laughs> yeah yeah, no, we, a different type of no, we we love those guys and and Robbo. That episode that we did with Robbo is fantastic, and I wonder if there isn't talking about you know learned behaviours and skills and how they're quick to pick things up. Certainly, from our time in the unit, the unit teaches things differently, and sometimes those habit patterns, the ones that are ingrained from maybe your time in the battalion, might not serve you that well. Whereas if you're a blank canvas like someone like Robbo is mm. and you're told a weapons drill or a tactic or a technique that's all you know mm. no other muscle memory to go to I think 
think he was interesting too because of his honesty. Uh, he was talking about fighter school and um, crying, crying in the, the toilet in the cubicles at night, crying <laughs> because of all the stuff that he had to deal with. But you, yeah, and you think you don't even. Oh, I've never even thought about um, what it must be like to go through that. But there would be a lot of pressure on that person. Ah, uh, look, to, um, yeah, a really steep pyramid to get to the top of that. Yep, and. I, I mean, that's what we love about Robbo and so many of those sort of guys. And, and I guess it comes to, to my brother's point as well, the, the average 70 kilo dickhead. You know, you look at some of these professions and you, I, I look at fighter pilots and think, how do they do that? You know, like that is a, not how do they fly the jet, how do they get there? You know, those are pressure cookers, those pilots course, fighter conversion, all that sort of stuff. Um, and yet they they sort of work their way through it it's it's one step at a time and and they're not superhuman like any of us they're they're to my dad's earlier point if if people can do it someone can and and they've just applied themselves it's impressive sort of shows that everybody thinks differently and to be something like that or someone like that you've obviously got to have a different sort of your brain has to be wired to accept and understand how that all works whereas a lot of people probably get jacked off with it and get the shits with it and blow it off yeah, whereas those guys seem to just focus and dig down with it and work through it a lot of people seem to um, just move on say okay it's too hard I'll move to something else where those guys um, must, just their mindset and their focus yeah. gets them through I, I reckon and, and I do think it's learnable I, I came very late to an awareness of this thing called a growth mindset but we do a bit of reading and writing and, and sort of work with clients on this now and just that idea that you, there is so much negative self-talk going on in, in a lot of our heads and the people who have got that, that mentality that instead of saying I, I can't do this they're saying I can't do this yet you know this is an opportunity for me to to develop and this is a challenge and I can get my teeth into this rather than this is a failure and something to be avoided and I don't ever want to feel like that again just that kind of I guess lens through which people like Robbo must look at life um, and which I'm trying to look at life more um, but yeah it's it's it really is a, a pretty amazing thing that childlike curiosity you know we you you couldn't walk until you started to try and ultimately walked and then you walked well and then you jogged and then you ran but, but how we, many times we, did you fall over and plenty bloody, yeah but it's childlike curiosity that we miss i think in adult age we're too scared just in case or oh, maybe i'll look silly or i won't achieve or i might fail mm. um i think we need more of it i think we need to be a little more inquisitive I'm, I'm very childlike in a lot of my <laughs> professional endeavours. <laughs> yes. I think you're right, though, Tim. I think we people, we all now, self-included, we, we think it's um, it's bad to show where you fall over and have to keep getting mm. up. And have a mindset where we put on a front to show confidence and, you know, push that out there and exude it and don't show any weakness. Whereas um, you're right, as a child, you did. You, you messed things up. You hurt yourself. You went and cried to mum. You come back, and then you got up again and went off. But as an adult, you don't. It's um, it's more of the I can't show this. I've just got to work through it, put on a, a front, and move through it. But um, I think there's there's a lot to that. I think we we seem to nowadays um really push working around 
those types of, although it's starting to come back a little bit now where uh, people are starting to look at things and, and show weakness, much like that test I gave you guys the other night. You know, it's fairly, some of those questions were a little bit leading, but to answer them, you had to really look at yourself and be honest. And I have worked out who the smartest guy is too. Just say his name. <laughs> the, the most intelli- um, emotionally intelligent rather than smart. Who do you think? Who do you think it was? Well, I went through Ben's answers when he wasn't looking because he left his <laughs> answers on the scanner. And I scanned, so for, for he, the listeners. He, he then had a little temper tantrum because I handed something over to him. And so I found the question and I said, you need to revisit <laughs> question 35 because you did not <laughs> score that. <laughs> um for the listeners, Hawks gave us some homework, which was a, an emotional intelligence survey, um, which I, I did diligently, scanned and sent back to him and then left it on the scanner for, for Tim to find. And, and he and I just put my name on the top, re-scanned it and <laughs> sent it all. Ridiculed me for it. Well, no, they weren't. They were different. But um, it was actually... Um, I won. Because my plan was to see... My plan was to see if I could still influence you two guys. <laughs> I did. I sent you an email and said, can you hear some homework? Can you get it back to me by Friday? Which you both did. Mm-hmm. And I sent it off with So they're my results. <laughs> so thanks, <laughs> thanks very much. I really appreciate it. Did, did you end up scoring them or was that the challenge? I got the, I got the highest score in North Queensland. <laughs> well, I mean, like most of these things, you can read the question, work out, what do they really want me to score? And if you want to game it, you can game it. Yeah, well, I mean, I, I spoke about that growth mindset thing before, and I became aware of that through a similar thing uh, during my MBA, a one of you know battery of tests, and one of them was was screening for that. And um, yeah, I, I it came back saying you've you've got a pretty fixed mindset in a certain certain uh, set of areas, mainly to do with work. And um, yeah, it was it was quite it was a good wake up call, but um, yeah, quite interesting to to see yourself through that lens. I guess particularly being in a unit where you think you're an unconventional thinker, hundred percent. And you know you can do like the special air, so you're very special in everything you do, mm. special operations. And so yeah, there's that sort of subliminal, uh, I guess, messaging or, or conditioning. But yeah, no, I think it's it's good to to hold a, a, um, a mirror up to yourself and I mean the more you can get out of your own head and, and look back with some degree of impartiality I think the better off you are. And Hawks to your point about just doing things that we're told to do by people like you I think this is kind of part of the beautiful partnership that exists in the military between an officer and a senior non-commissioned officer I don't think I ever Warren didn't officer. do something Foreign officer and foreign officers and sergeants. Um, I don't think I ever didn't do something I was asked to do by a platoon sergeant, troop sergeant. Yeah, and and look on a different tangent. I think to to the point that Ben brought up about um, you know when you're in the defence, you you think you're the master of everything, and you get very good at what you do, but. When you look at it in the civilian context, which we're all working in now, we're not in organisations that pay us and give us funding to do training, nothing but training. We're in organisations that skimp and won't spend on training, won't get people in to talk to you. They, you know, they're trying to make money. 
and you come out of an organised, especially for the regiment SAS over there, you come out of an organisation that's focused on achieving high standards and, and developing a capability with basically unlimited resources uh, into organisations that are very tight on the resources, very tight on the training, do little snippets but expect the same results. And um, obviously that's what you guys do now is try to work with organisations around that. But it must be difficult when you see, in a lot of cases, there's not really much um, sort of focus on, they'll look at it, but they won't focus on spending or trying to implement in a lot of cases and purely because it's driven by cash. Hmm. Look, I think you're 100% right and and it is it would be easy and in both we're our two key practice areas are, are related to sort of crisis management so high pressure planning and decision making um, uh, situations and leadership and it would be very easy to look back and say oh well, in army they do this and in army do they do that and you should adopt the army methodology but your point's 100 percent that army's got that luxury of being able to train and train and train and train and drill this into people because we're not making a you know, we're not a profit-making entity. And so you need to be able to, um, I guess, uh, look through that lens and, and sort of what we try to do and, and what I, I think we do do um, is take some of that, I guess, methodology and really contextualise it for a corporate environment where you don't have the benefit of being able to train 100%. A lot of the time, people in these planning and operations roles within a crisis context that's not their day job. That's something they do on top of a very busy day job. And so you've got to try and make uh, structures, processes and training that's going to be as effective as possible under those constraints. Um, but uh, having said that, one thing I do think the Army does well is that continuum of leadership training that's appropriate for the the leadership context that people are going to. So something ab initio, you know, right at the start to set the framework, something at that junior leader, something at that middle management, something at that transition into executive, and then something at that strategic level. Um, mm. a, a lot of organisations uh, try to do this, but but often it's not in a coherent continuum. You know, it's a little ad hoc. Um, and so I think there is scope to to get a little bit of the best of both worlds in that respect. So, um, both is obviously influenced by your fathers, um, joined the military, went to Duntroon. Let's have a little bit of a chat about Duntroon or Adfa. Do you How know the, that? Do, do you know the difference between Duntroon yeah, and Adfa? Yeah, I do. Yeah. Okay. Well, one guy get a degree in arts or something, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yes, well, yeah, that's right. He's already got a degree and he gets trained. <laughs> not, not, not exclusively arts, but if all you're good for is an arts degree, then that's what you get. I've got a question for you. What is an arts degree? Hawks, we don't what have enough time on this podcast to explain I, I, the unique nature of an arts degree. I used to describe it as a degree in dinner party conversation. You, you, I, like, 
I did um, politi- uh, politi- politish, politics, English, and history. And wonderful. Fas- you know, just <laughs> fascinating, interesting stuff. <laughs> what did you learn and what did you remember? I, I did a project on Genghis Khan where I made a bow out of a um, cow's leg or something. Uh, you know, what subject was that for? Uh, it, it was a history subject. Um, I... Yeah, I do recall. This was all, and I think um, I think university in general was was different before the internet. <laughs> <laughs> I think so. so was it all the same, isn't it? So I mean, you know, your your research on any given topic was limited to the three books in the library on that topic, and your time and inclination to go to the library, which I I had a lot of. I, I look back on my time at Adfer and. Regret. Spent a lot of time in the library. I spent a yeah. lot. I spent a lot of time in the library. We have very, very contrasting uh, first starts to our military career at Adford because I was quite the opposite. Mm. I, um, my arts degree, also history, politics, English, sixteen straight passes, nothing above sixty percent. I didn't fail anything, but my lowest, <laughs> my lowest mark was at forty nine percent conceded pass. See, I don't think I. I think I got straight HDs throughout university. And you're still here, sitting in the same room, talking on a similar microphone to the same bloke, Mr. Simon Hawkins. Um, but, but I majored, I think I majored in nightclubbing, football. There's a fair bit of social life in my three years at ADFA. Mm, yeah, I did not. So this, and and regret it. This is the start of this, um, and I'm interested in this, this link or bond that you two have developed so you did the same degree at ADFA yeah the paths are quite uncanny in many ways in our lives full stop but we wouldn't consider ourselves to be too much maybe too many true similarities I don't know oh well let's keep going (laughs) (laughs) well we both did the same degree and and imagine the same subjects with completely different results yep and then you both ended up graduating from Duntroon. Yes. And had just come in your classes. Well, Ben flipped his, you yeah. flipped your performance at ADFA. You were the Academy Cadet Captain, so the top cadet at the Australian Defence Force Academy. And then you graduated as the lowest possible cadet rank you can have at the Royal Military College. I, I graduated second in my class, but lowest possible <laughs> rank. I had a bit of a fall from grace uh, at RMC. I found, um, I actually found, I, I really enjoyed ADFA, um, I enjoyed um, being a member of the cadet hierarchy, you know, as, as small fry as that was, but I, I found that really cool. But then I, I found RMC was like, I don't know, going back to high school, you sort of, it seemed very constrained. And I think I, there I was did, a lot of rules. There were a lot of rules, and I think I knee jerked against them. And um, I, in fact, I, I got. Um, <laughs> the, I, I got charged for fraternisation. So. Um, you weren't allowed to, to hook up with other cadets, and I did. But I got charged by fraternisation from a guy who was married to another army officer who he'd met at RMC, and I thought this was a little bit hypocritical that, you know, you can't tell me you never fraternise when, when you're at RMC. And so I begrudgingly spent two weeks marching up and down the parade ground with the girl I was fraternising with. I've never spent so much time with her. And then I, for some I. I Anyway, I went AWOL and um, I had a, still have a, a very conspicuous car, a, an old Mustang. And of course, the uh, 
one of the DMET, I think the, the director of military training, saw my car downtown when he knew I was supposed to be on um, on restriction of privileges and stoppage of leave. And, and so he asked me, were you, were you downtown? And of course, the big integrity question, I had to say, yes, sir, I was downtown. And so I got another two weeks on the square for AWOL. And tell hmm. now that's interesting because that is a similarity that I didn't know because I was done for fraternisation at ADFA. Right. Although there was a small problem, I wasn't fraternising with the girl in question. We'd just broken the rule by having the door closed or whatever the the ridiculous rule was. Being in the same room and not having the door half open. Which I also got two weeks restriction of privileges and marching around the parade square a couple of times a day. And I tell you what, when you've got nothing else to do, if you're not fraternising at the start, you're certainly (laughs) fraternising at the end. Fraternising by the end of it. But I also also was the proud recipient of an officer qualities warning off the back of that, and I had a commandant. Officer Officer qualities warning, whereas Ben had officers... Officer Qualities Commendations. Commendations. We, we spoke, I think, in one of, the, one of our podcasts about, they used to call them jibbers. They were these little sort of badges, badges. you'd wear on your name tag uh, that would indicate if you, you had... There was academics and officer qualities, wasn't there? I have no idea. I had neither. That, <laughs> <laughs> that mercurial um, category of officer qualities, whatever they are. Mm. Um, but apparently Tim was bad at them and I was good at them. I didn't have any of them. And because <laughs> because I got my officer qualities warning right at the tail end of my time at ADFA, the warning came with me across to the Royal Military College Duntroon, the other side of the hill, literally, where with some degree of, degree of coincidence and somewhat peculiarly, my father was the commandant. <laughs> so, so I had a dad's officer qualities warning when I started at RMC. Was he happy with that? Oh, I think he didn't really give two flying hoots. Um, and I shook that off within a few months and got on with it. But yeah, but actually my my perspective on RMC was a little different because I didn't enjoy ADFA. I didn't like the university piece. Um, I was really wanting to get into the big army. And so for me, the 12 months that we spent at RMC after ADFA was really focused. I'd made up my mind that I wanted to go and be an infantry officer and uh yeah of course there were things you didn't particularly like and certainly there was a lot of rules Mm. but i was very focused and fixated and i didn't graduate as high as you i graduated five of 166 but did graduate to infantry and found myself a bit like you up in townsville townsville you would come up to the you both came to the second battalion didn't you I came to the 2nd, 4th Battalion Hawks. Okay, so you got there in 93, 4? Uh, that's right, the end of 92, start of 93. That's exactly right. Yeah, so you came to the 2nd, 4th Battalion. And what, what, to, what were you at 92, 93, Hawks, when when Tim arrived? I was a corporal in Alfred. Corporal in Alfred and I went to Rwanda in 94, yeah. 95. Yep. Uh, eight, in fact, yeah. We, when we, I came we, back... When I came back, I went to recon platoon and back there as a patrol commander, and that's when Mr. Curtis was there. That's when the commander. broom came in to clean things up. These <laughs> grubby patrol commanders. I came, I came back from Africa, cleaned it out for him. <laughs> <laughs> no, so yeah, I was a corporal then when Tim would have arrived. In so I went from recon to Alpha on promotion, reluctantly, and spent two years in Alpha, and then. And spent two years down there before I moved on again. But um, 
Yeah, so two four, and Ben came up to two. Yep. What do you remember yep. when you got to the battalion? How was that for a young officer fresh out of uh, RMC coming to the battalion? Well, I was very fortunate. I had an exceptional platoon sergeant, Paul Stanton, who was yep. very young, I think, for a sergeant. He was 24 or 25. That and Charlie Company. That's right, yeah. So eight platoon Charlie Company. Huh. I was seven. Yeah. <laughs> well, I didn't know that. <laughs> So um, these links are getting closer. Yeah, yeah, yeah there's peculiar parallels. Very peculiar yeah, parallels. But, but Paul and I were real kindred spirits. He, he was um, just a fantastic confidant. He was incredibly supportive, like a young enthusiastic leader is. You want to do a whole heap of different things and change the world, and some of your ideas are, with the benefit of hindsight and the wisdom of a platoon sergeant, yeah. a little silly. <laughs> Um, but yeah, we uh, we got on famously. We had a fantastic platoon, um, and I really enjoyed my time as a platoon commander, right up to and including the point where he smashed my front teeth out with a mortar aiming post, <laughs> which is which is a story in itself. In fact, I'll, I'll tell you that one. I can't tell half a story. But I'd walked up um, from the officers' mess to the platoon office carrying my backpack that everyone just left their backpacks outside the officer's mess and um, I put my backpack down on my desk and uh, I you know, potted out to do something and came back and reached in to grab whatever it was, files, not a laptop those in those days, out of my backpack. Miner's notebooks they would have and, been. And, hmm. Paul, and Paul, as you know, Hawks, was a, he was a bit of a trickster. He liked a good practical joke and as I lifted my folder up, I saw at the bottom of my bag a rubber snake. And I said, Sarge, uh, you know I don't like snakes. I picked up the bag to, you know, sort of make a bit of a joke out of it. I said, you know I don't like snakes. That's not funny. And the look on his face was a bit odd. And he said, what are you talking about? (laughs) And I dropped the folder on my desk and I dropped the backpack on the floor, which tipped over and out wriggled a yellow belly black snake, <laughs> highly venomous, <laughs> and it had crawled into my open backpack down the mess and I'd carried it up in my backpack to the platoon office anyway. So he was as scared of snakes as I was. We both jumped on my desk. Um, Paul, being the character he was, grabbed a mortar aiming post that was in the corner of the office and started swinging it wildly, <laughs> screaming for the orderly room corporal. And as he was swinging it around, my head got in the way. Collected the platoon commander. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. How well planned was that? Non, non-battle casualty. That's funny. Yeah. So did you have? Um, was Bones Brady the? <laughs> Charlie. Uh, he, he was mine. Yeah. No, I had Skull Helmrich, who was fantastic. Oh, Leon. Yep. Fantastic mm. company who sergeant. Was your commander. Uh, Ron Bomegart was my company oh, commander, yeah. and both yep. were excellent. I mean, Ron, very a lot of <laughs> empathy for these young platoon commanders. And Leon Helmrich, um, a.k.a. Skull, because he was bald, um, and he did have a big skull. He was, um, he was excellent at, you know, he'd call you into the office and he'd shut the door and he'd say, Sir, <laughs> can we just have a chat about a couple of things? But those are the days when, um, in fact, I think that 93 might have been the first year Hawks for the Duke of Gloucester Cup, which selects the champion section in the Royal Australian Regiment. And it selected, in that year certainly, it selected platoons at random in each of the battalions. And from that platoon, you had to form a section 
and you had to prepare them to go and compete against all these other sections from different battalions down in Singleton and my platoon got selected and at the time Paul had been seconded I think across into Rwanda from memory he and so yeah and so Skull Helmrich the CSM um, and I trained the section to send down to the Duke of Gloucester Cup and um, we had an absolute blast you know we, we got plenty of resources the boys were super focused they were fit and um, and you know did everything we asked of them and we kind of trained them hard and as they were leaving I said boys if you win this I will shave my head and they went down of course they won the Duke of Gloucester Cup by the greatest ever winning margin they were one of the first sections only to win the McDonald Cup the night competition so they came back with these two trophies but uh, I was about to shave my head I knew they were coming back and I got a call from the commanding officer who'd been down there for the award of the trophies and he said Lieutenant Curtis I heard a rumor that you were going to shave your head if the team won I said sir yes I've promised the section that's what I'm going to do he said I'm telling you you are not to shave your head it is unofficer like and I'll take action against you if you shave your head I said I'm sorry sir I'm going to shave my head he said you will wait 24 hours and we'll have another conversation in that 24 hour time uh, Dick Wilson was the CEO he'd come back up um, we're all up the the boozer with the section and the two trophies and he stood up with a microphone and said, you know, ladies and gentlemen, this stupid subaltern said he'd shave his head. I told him not to, but now we're going to get, we're going to pull out a set of razors and, and, you know, cut his hair in front of everyone. So as it transpired, the clippers came out, shaved my head and uh, Skull Helmrich picked all the hair off the ground and wore my hair. <laughs> <laughs> for a night in the boozer. <laughs> and I have Skull this... was my um, platoon sergeant at Singleton in IT. Oh, yeah. He's a fantastic human being. And I have this, I have this um, morning after picture of me hungover with an absolutely fully shaved head. I'll send it across to you. It, it looks ridiculous. And I look like a Biafran refugee, my skinny body and a shaved head. And what about you, Ben, coming to the battalion as a lieutenant? How was that? It was awesome. I came up, I'm trying to work out the dates. It must have been sort of Christmas 96. We had to march in because the battalion was online. Um, and so I, I sort of drove up from Canberra, I think direct, um, with another couple of guys, uh, Grant Chisnell and Anthony Birch. Chisnell. Um, yeah. We had a, and a fantastic cohort of subalterns that went up from RMC um, and looked straight into it. So I, like Tim, had an amazing first platoon sergeant in Chevy, Lee Chevalier, um, who Hawks you obviously know well, um, and all the same stuff as Tim, the amount of times that he stopped me from doing something stupid and, and sort of gently guided me into a, a more sort of um, coherent course of action was amazing. But we came up um, straight into Townsville floods. And so within sort of, I don't know, a couple of days of being there, I seem to recall, um, Townsville had flooded. So and, and it was quite cool, you know, suddenly going up to the tropics and, and this amazing sort of uh, natural event but of course we got reacted we we were online the ODF battalion 
um, and the pager went off, which was super exciting, and, and we ended up doing all this flood relief stuff. So you have no excuse for sandbagging incorrectly. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. So I'd gone to recon, and he rang me, and he said, um, my platoon command. I said, oh, okay, what's he like? He goes, oh, fuck. He goes, no, he's all right. He just... Um, <laughs> I'll bring it up later, but he said there's one little thing that he does. You need to keep an eye on. So yeah, <laughs> had a bit of a chat anyway. Turned up. Oh come on, that, that's a half story. What's the one little thing that Mr. Prompt did? Hawks? He said to me, um, and I didn't notice this until we went to Timor. He said to me, Mr. Prompt um, has a habit of playing intellectual tennis with company commanders, and they don't like it. <laughs> And he said to me, if he keeps it up, he's going to destroy his career. And I'm thinking, okay, no worries. Anyway, I didn't see it um, when we are in the platoon in Australia, but when we went overseas, I soon saw it pop up <laughs> um, with the ops, the two opsos we had at the time, Seagull and bloody, it was the other one, Future and Present or whatever the hell they were. Yeah, yeah. And he started to play um, intellectual tennis with them. Gee, isn't that a great way? Isn't that a great way to get extra duties for your oh, platoon? Well, and also, I mean, when um, our OC at that time was Dave Kilcullen, who's <laughs> clearly uh, an intellectual giant. Um, so yeah, I was I was well and truly out of my league. I think on the the intellect side, I didn't see it that way. Yeah, he, I thought he was. <laughs> it's very, he's certainly gone on to, to bigger and better intellectual things than, than yeah he than probably I. had I think at the time it wasn't it was um, it was more protecting you from destroying your career <laughs> and, the, um, and the platoon for filling more sandbags and painting white rocks and other menial oh, no, tasks we, we would have been right I knew how to deal with it we would have been fine but, uh, <laughs> but, but isn't, isn't it funny and this is that, that beauty of exactly Chevy's advice and what you've just said Hawks I mean that wisdom in the the sergeant corps, the senior NTO corps, they've seen this. <laughs> they know how this song goes. <laughs> they've seen this young punk. I can, I can he, sing the chorus for you if you like. <laughs> he thinks he's smarter than everyone, and you know he's got his good twelve months at RMC. He's God's gift to soldiering. Um, it it is. I mean, Tim's point before. It's such a when it works, and and it. General, More often generally than not, does. yeah, generally it does. Such a, mm. a a wonderful bloody symbiosis. There's some intellectual tennis for you, but you know that that combination of skills and attributes between a, a young, inexperienced but hopefully smart and well trained platoon commander. Mm. Yeah, all um, that enthusiasm. Yeah, versus you know the the person who actually knows how the the world works in in an infantry battalion, being the platoon sergeant. All that experience. Yeah, I remember um, asking my father-in-law, who ended up being a Warren off, so I had served in Vietnam and everything. But he, I asked him when I was a young corporal, um, I asked him, why do we have officers? And he explained to me that, um, <laughs> and he, it, was a, it was pretty, it was pretty relevant. I had to be a fly on the wall for that conversation. Well, no, it was actually, he was right. He said, we have them because somebody has to make that decision. And he gave me an example of um, exponents. He said, if a platoon commander gets to a point where he's got to order fixed bayonets and assault, he said if he's everybody's mate and he's the same and he's eats in the same mess, drinks in the same mess, does everything the same as you guys, you're not going to do it. 
He said, because he doesn't, he will. And he goes, but just remember, he said, the platoon sergeant standing next to him, when he says it, if he shakes his head, don't do it. Mm. He nods, do it. And that sort of clicked with me. And um, he was the one who told me as well. He said, um, there's no such thing as a bad platoon commander. There's bad platoon sergeants, which we talked about before as well. And I've seen that as well. I've seen young lieutenants walk in and someone just ride them into the ground and destroy their career. Or or let them them stuff up, you know. And I think Tim and I both mentioned the, the saves that we had from the platoon sergeant just saying, hey, you know, I don't think that's a good idea or if you thought about doing it this way and 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 that's your job your job is to yeah. help them to use all this knowledge they've got now and in, and and implement it push it out mm. to make it work um, not to chastise them uh, let them sink whatever it may be but um yeah i had that naive view of it as well as a young guy and then when i got some words of wisdom i sort of changed my approach as well but um, that, we both that, were lucky that you got good platoon sergeants, I think. We, yeah. In fact, I don't think I've had a bad one. I mean, mm. yeah, it's, it's been pretty amazing. In fact, most of mine are commissioned, which probably says something about, you know, them looking yeah. at me and going, geez, if, if that's what it's all about, <laughs> it can't be well, that difficult. They were, they were inspired by you, Tim. Oh, unlikely. Like, I want to be like Tim Curtis. Very unlikely. <laughs> said, no one ever. Doubt, doubt it. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, Paulie often says that. <laughs> <laughs> uh, in fact, I sent him a text the other day. Um, he was he was very curt in his response. <laughs> but it's actually right, funny, don't... Hawks, what you what you said or your father in law's story about that separation. And I think mm. over the course of time, and certainly over the course of my career, you know, there's been periods where I've been too close, and I think uh, organisationally, there's been periods where. Officers have been a bit too matey um, with uh, their um, team, their subordinate, their, their platoon, troop, squadron, whatever. And it does, it sets the preconditions for, for a compromising position. Or does familiarity breed contempt? Yep. I, yeah. I think it's from the other side, though. The other side, so the ORs are the ones that are looking at you then saying, oh, you it was all right last night we were out having a few beers and now he's... Yeah, well, it's a, it's a double standard, isn't it? It is. And depending on the, you know, the calibre of soldier you've got, it, it will still be there to a degree. And like yesterday he was fine. Now he's telling me, no, this is what we're going to do. Um, whereas if you have that degree of separation, it's, okay, what a, what a, I'll do it. And I think it's, it's important. And I've seen it a few times where it's gone pear-shape and... Um, it was important for us, for me anyway, to make sure that that didn't happen. That you, and I think I've told you a few times to pull away from the diggers a little bit. Yeah, and need to sit down with them for fucking ten hours a day. And yeah, yeah. But at the end of the day, it's um, it's a learning curve. But you've got to have that degree of separation. It's the same as senior NCOs. You've got to make that break. Mm. You can't make that break, then you're in trouble. And it's funny looking at a lot of the clients we work with now. It's kind of tough in a lot of um, civilian organisations because people, you know, the military tends to promote and post, so you don't end up being in charge of the people that the day before were your your mates. You know, they'll they'll often post you to a different subunit or even battalion, you know, and then back in as you go through those stages. Um, but a lot of 
other companies don't have that luxury and, and so one day you're, you're one of the, the boys or girls and the next day you're supposed to be in charge and it's a tough gig. Feels like my back's against wall It's for our fans I can't meet you So we'll move on. We, we talked about the battalion and obviously both of you ended up in recon platoon and I served under Mr. Curtis as a corporal, a patrol commander, um, and served with Ben as a platoon sergeant. Then both of you um, decided to head over to the west. I think, when did you do selection, Tim? I did selection in March 1996. There's actually two selections that year. Um, which at the time was quite odd, but yeah, I did the first selection March '96, uh, and I'd been posted to the School of Infantry in Singleton. As soon as you indicate your intention to do SA selection, they generally send you to the shittiest role they can find. Um, which, in retrospect, whilst I was frustrated to go and do a no nowhere job in a nowhere place. <laughs> of Singleton, um, it was fantastic for training. You know, it was it was incredibly well resourced you know, in terms of gyms and pools and um, the physical training instructors were incredible. They really gave generously of their time um, and not to mention the close training areas for navigation exercises and for pack marching. And I guess the other thing also, you know, I was getting up at 3.30 in the morning to train before I had to be at work at 7.30. But I knew that my day from 7.30 and beyond was not going to be particularly inspiring. And so I looked forward to getting my second training session in at the end of the day. Um, And then, oh, by the way, when I was was on selection, I... uh, in, In the rare time, but they do happen on selection, that I thought, oh, this is... This is pretty miserable. I just needed to think to myself, if you don't get through this course, you're going back there for another two years. I, I reflected when we spoke with Wayne Jones on our show the, a while ago, um, but when you're in the unit, the the legend of the people who had gone across to, to Perth, you know, it, it, it grows beyond all proportion. And so it was quite funny, you know, spending two years uh, into RAR, with the full intent of doing selection, you you kind of knew all these guys that had gone across, and it, it was quite funny to to meet them in in due course when I got over there, and all amazing, you know, champions. But uh, yeah, the the uh, like I said, mystique, that, the, the mystique, aura, the yes. aura that that preceded them. Um, you, you'd think I I kind of expected to see these seven foot but he built like Adonis sort of things, the way they were described in the in the unit. Just more average 70 kilo decades. Yeah, yeah. Well, a good one is Ross Walker. He, um, 
I remember going out bush with him in a in a recon patrol, and he, I was pushing rocks away from where I was going to lay me um, bivy bag down, and he was grabbing them. And I said, "What are you doing, mate?" And he goes, "I'm going to sleep on all these. I'm doing selection." <laughs> <laughs> but that was his mentality, and he, you know, he we used to call him Gunny. I know you guys call him Whiskey Breath, but we called him Gunny as in Gunny Highway. Um, he was just, yeah, he was just that bigger than big personality and um, got what he wanted. Did a good, made a big career of it too. He's only recently got out as well. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. Down in uh, Victoria. My enduring, my enduring memory of Ross, just a really quick one, um, was obviously he was quite badly injured in his service. Mm. He ended up going to Marine Troop and he, uh, we won't need to recount the story, but came with us on the Pong Su uh, operation to board and seize the merchant vessel Pong Su and drove the rigid hull inflatable boat and we rode him up for accommodation. Such was his focus um, to get that boat into a safe position where in sea state six guys could get onto the Pong Su. It was incredible. And actually even more powerful memory for me was during the rehearsal which was the day before we rehearsed back onto the frigate that was providing our um, you know the forward, floating forward operating base and oh it was terrifying I, I clearly was not getting in the boat but watching watching from the safety of the bridge wing <laughs> uh, it was it was absolutely terrifying I was nearly convinced we were going to lose someone because of the sea state and the challenges and uh, this the, the look of sheer concentration and focus on Ross's face. It was quite unbelievable, actually. Meanwhile, he's tripping out So she takes the car Meanwhile, she's leaving town But she won't go
Now to the debrief. We relentlessly pursue excellence on Unforgiving 60 and we want your insights and feedback. And indeed, if you know someone who has great insights to share with us that have a practical difference, then get in touch with us at debrief at unforgiving60.com. That's unforgiving60.com. We love speaking to anyone who's been walking on the path less travelled and is generally living the life less ordinary. And if you like the podcast, please rate us on iTunes. You can also follow us on social media. Just search at Unforgiving60, that's Unforgiving60. Facebook, Instagram, Twitter and YouTube, you know what to do. See you next episode on the Unforgiving 60.